0: Excuse me! Jack! Sam! Ha! I heard you were coming aboard. Congratulations! D-Z-015! stroke Thanks! Are you officer 4-2-stroke L? Uh-huh, that's me. A very happy Christmas.
1: From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Hello everyone and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough, I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Joining me today here in information retrieval is employee DZ-105, also known as my lovely wife Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic.
2: I feel like I'm not going to like this movie.
1: Just based on that?
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) You you make a lot of snap judgments. I
2: I can, yeah, no.
1: (laughs) Okay, I'm curious now. What exactly do you did you get from that that makes you think you're not going to like this movie?
2: Is this some like dystopian bullshit?
1: Uh, it's possibly a yeah. little dystopian. Okay.
2: No, thank you. Is P the currency? I just don't. Know. <laughs> I'm not interested in doing
1: this. I don't know why that's your go-to thing. With... Isn't
2: there a movie where P is the currency?
1: No, <laughs> there's a movie. Water world with Kevin Costner, where he drinks his own pee because there's a water shortage. I I don't know of any movie where people use pee as currency. (laughs) Okay. I mean, don't get me wrong, I would watch that movie, but...
2: No, okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Throughout December, Nikki and I are watching Christmas-adjacent movies. These are films that take place during the holiday season, but really have bugger-all to do with the holiday itself. On today's episode, we're sitting down for Nakia's first viewing of one of my favorite feel-good Yuletide classics, Terry Gilliam's Brazil from 1985. Uh, Nikia, before we get to that, we should probably begin this week with a bit of an apology.
2: You, not we. (laughs) Don't be the New York Times.
1: Our regularly scheduled episode (laughs) never appeared last week. Uh, We had previously announced that we'd be watching (laughs) another Christmas-adjacent movie, Todd Haynes' Carol, from 2015. We did watch Carol. We both really enjoyed Carol. And, as far as our listeners know, we had an entertaining, erudite, incredibly insightful conversation about Carol. It was really our best episode. Yeah, I think you were particularly brilliant in that episode, sweetie. Absolutely. (laughs) Unfortunately, however, I... I... Thank you. ...somehow completely mucked up the recording of that episode, and my efforts to salvage it somehow ended up making it much, much worse. And our... Our shtick here does not really lend itself to do-overs.
2: No, no, I'm a one and done. We
1: have a spontaneous conversation, and then we can't really... Okay, let's have that spontaneous conversation again.
2: Yeah, no.
1: So we finally had to admit that this was a conversation lost to posterity, and we apologize for that.
2: You apologize for that, yes.
1: I like to think of us as a team. like when you fuck up.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Then you're on your own.
1: I've got to say, in retrospect, I'm a little surprised that this was the first time that's happened in some 40-odd episodes that we've done, because I really don't know what I'm doing here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would this be a good time for us to remind our listeners that we have a donate button on the website and that we really need new microphones and equipment? Or would that be crass and opportunistic?
2: It's absolutely crass and opportunistic. And it's Christmas time, and everybody's trying to buy G.I. Joe with the kung fu grip for their children. <laughs> no, so. it's
1: Christmas time, spirit of giving. No. And we desperately no. need new sound recording equipment. And yeah, nobody's
2: going to give us anything. Studio
1: space. Especially and... if you're just going to be fucking up.
2: <laughs> this wouldn't happen on Terry Gross's show.
1: <laughs> oh, jeez, that was hurtful. <laughs> okay, anyway, again, we apologize. I apologize Thank for you. the unscheduled change. But we are moving on to the next film in our not very Christmassy Christmas marathon, Brazil. Nakia, what do you know about Brazil? I
2: know shit all about Brazil.
1: Absolutely nothing. Absolutely
2: nothing. <laughs> okay. I've seen Terry Gilliam movies. Well, that's I'm what like... I was going to ask you. Have you actually seen any Terry so Gilliam movies? So you made movies? me watch Holy Grail. Didn't enjoy it. Okay. Um,
1: that, yeah. <laughs>
2: and I watched Fear and Loathing.
1: Oh, was... okay. I didn't know you'd seen Fear and Loathing.
2: You know, I love Benicio. I watched Benicio. Oh, that's as right. <laughs> so. I don't think I, I don't remember loving Fear and Love. I didn't but, love
1: that movie either.
2: But that's the extent of my Gilliam.
1: Okay, so you haven't seen, I know you haven't seen Time Bandits, which is on our list. Yeah. That's another one of my favorites. We will watch that one of these days. Mm-hmm. Um, you haven't seen Baron Munchausen. Nope. You haven't seen Twelve Monkeys. Nope. Okay. Um, and his later, a lot of his later films I have not seen. I haven't seen The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. I
2: don't remember that getting great reviews.
1: No, well, that was the one that Heath Ledger was working on when he died. Oh. And then they came up with some weird thing where three different actors came in to play the part and Mm. finish the movie. Mm -hmm. This is Terry Gilliam is known for being plagued by disaster. Oh, he's doing Don Quixote, isn't he? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's the the famous example. Yes.
2: The other thing that I know about Terry Gilliam is that he is a butt hurt white man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who I believe a recent quote was that he wishes he were a gay black woman so yeah. that he'd sort of be immune from any sort of criticism or he could be jo- something. It was ridiculous.
1: Whatever. Terry has become a little problematic in his old age. He's, I mean, he's pushing 80 at this point. Mm-hmm. I think he's one of those old white liberals, and you and I know personally some people like this who just. They've thought of themselves as progressive all their lives, and then they get to a point, and it's like, okay, no, actually, you you have not managed to get your brain around the current culture. Right, right. Um, but yeah, earlier this year, the context was... The BBC had a press conference where they were sort of announcing their new focus on diversity, mm-hmm. and the executive there, someone asked them about Monty They didn't bring it up, but someone asked them, you know, about Monty Python.
2: Oh, that's right. Yes.
1: And the executive said something to the effect of, you know, if we put together a comedy team now, it's not going to be six white guys from Oxford and Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Terry threw a fit about this. He said, the quote is, he said, It made me cry the idea that no longer six white Oxbridge men can make a comedy show. Now we need one of this, one of that, everybody represented, this is bullshit. I no longer want to be a white male. I don't want to be blamed for everything wrong in the world. I tell the world now I'm a black lesbian. My name is Loretta, and I'm a BLT, a black lesbian and transition.
2: First, okay. Go ahead. So many things. (laughs) Why Loretta? That's a problem. <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't know. <laughs> sure.
2: Two, are you as a straight white man allowed to make a back BLT? Really? That's mm-hmm. what we're doing now. Yeah. Three. <sighs> yeah.
1: I think we. I, just, I think we broke Nikki F. I, just, I think that quote broke Nikki F. There's
2: just so much. <laughs> <laughs> just entitlement and lack of self awareness and this idea that like oh. White men are just being blamed for everything. Well, stop mm-hmm. fucking up.
1: Yeah. That,
2: that's just historical accuracy. If we look, <laughs> if you trace back all of the sort of inequities in, in this world, yeah, you're going to end up at white dude. So Yeah, we're sort of the devil. Yeah, take that. <laughs> You're taking the privilege, so take the blame. All right.
1: Well, while we're here, let me uh, well, let me throw this in, too. Because he also, er, again, earlier this year, uh, he had a few words to say about the Me Too movement. Of course he did. Uh, and complaining that we now live in a world of victims.
2: You just made yourself a victim! <laughs>
1: <laughs> and while he did acknowledge that Harvey Weinstein was a monster and an asshole, those are quotes... Uh, he also said, Harvey opened the door for a few people. A night with Harvey, that's the price you pay. I think some people did very well out of meeting with Harvey and others didn't. The ones who did knew what they were doing. These are adults. We're talking about adults with a lot of ambition.
2: What's the British thing? Twat? He's a twat. It's just... No...
1: And he also made the comments about Matt Damon, about how they killed Matt Damon for making comics.
2: I believe Matt for, Damon is still alive. Yeah,
1: and doing very well. And in working making, and yeah. has mm-hmm. a
2: lovely life, I would assume. Yes. No one has, some people may have lost a job, but everyone is still, has viable careers, are still very wealthy, still have, you know, social and professional capital that they can leverage in benefit of themselves and their friends. So this idea that anybody has been lynched, that anybody has been killed, and it like that just it hasn't happened and again you know you're decrying this this uh, era of victimhood you're you're claiming victimhood when you haven't suffered anything
1: well we're white men we're not used to suffering at all or being criticized about anything so th- this is what suffering feels like to us
2: here's the thing <laughs> you spend all this time arguing that you are the superior race and the <laughs> superior gender but you can't take shits without crying about it. We're very fragile. It's like barely in a bad Vanity Fair article and you're broken for the rest of your life while you collect your checks. Like, I just, no. I hope Loretta whoops your ass.
1: <laughs> okay, so we we got that out of the way because I know that was, that was going to bias you coming into this. As it should. And it should, and it should. I mean, the only thing I will say... And it's not a defense. But again, I come back to this idea that Terry was very progressive. He left America because he felt like it was becoming a police state in the 60s. He was on the left. And I think he's just he's just old and he's so painfully out of touch at this point and has never examined his it. place.
2: I think right. Okay, that's what I think it is. I don't know that it's about being old. I think it's easy for people to claim the mantle of liberal or progressive when it when you don't actually have to do any self-examination, when you don't actually have to look at how you... Have benefited from various systems and hierarchies, and so when someone asks, simply just asks you to think about it and you react in that way, then you were not ever progressive or liberal. If you're, if you can just do it when it's easy, that's no, that's some bullshit.
1: I guess my point is. I think in the 70s and 80s, Monty Python got used to thinking of themselves as the cutting edge mm-hmm. of challenging authority. Mm-hmm. And I think Terry Gilliam is still coming from this place where he thinks he's still that, and he thinks he knows what's on the cutting edge. And, and what I'm knows saying is, how to if you thought you
2: were challenging authority, but you weren't willing to challenge white supremacy as the ultimate authority, then you weren't really challenging anything. Like, you, you want to be... Like British schoolboy thumbing your nose at the monarchy? Okay, that's cute. <laughs> Next. Congratulations, you're a revolutionary.
1: <sighs> I'm concerned now that we've gotten off on the wrong foot <laughs> watching a Terry Gilliam movie. Well, that was just going to be what it is.
2: And it's just on a level of you're supposed to be an artist, and I think we should hold our artists to slightly higher standards of empathy and imagination. Mm-hmm. And you have just proven you lack both of those at least for, for me as a black female audience member. Right. You can't imagine a world where I would add anything to your little comedy troupe. Mm-hmm. All right. I don't think you can't really have anything to say for me. So But yay, Monty Python genius.
0: Do you wake from your finest fantasy? Only to return to your daily nightmare. Mr. is your mother about to look younger than you do? Does the woman of your dreams... I love you. In my dreams, I love you. ...still have a few doubts? Then it's time to take a stand. To break out of your dull, humdrum life and into Brazil. You're so pleased you can make it right this way. It's about flights of fantasy and the nightmare of reality. We're all in this together. Terrorist bombings. I don't think it involves anything unsavory. Don't trust me, Jack. And late night shopping. In, ah. True love. You don't trust me?
2: Trust you? Trust you? The man who hijacks my truck, loses me my job, has every security man in town looking for me? Of course I trust you. I'm trying to help. Yeah.
0: And creative plumbing. There's a problem. Can you fix it? No, I can't. From Terry Gilliam, director of Time Bandits, Jonathan Price. Uh. Sam, what are we going to do with him? Robert De Niro. I came into this game for the action, the excitement. Go anywhere, travel light, get in, get out, wherever there's trouble, a man alone. Catherine Hellman and Michael Palin. We've always been close, haven't we? Yes, Jack. Until this all blows over, just stay away from me. Brazil. It's only a state of mind. We're all in it together, kid.
1: Okay, so let's talk about Brazil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the story behind this film is actually fascinating. Mm-hmm. As we said, Gilliam had been a founding member of Money Python. He was the only American-born member. He had left America in 1968. He got dual citizenship. Um, he actually ended up renouncing his American citizenship during the Bush years. So he's now a British citizen. Mm-hmm he had started to hone that what would later become known as the gilliam-esque style during the python years he did the short the animated sequences on the tv show and in the movies he directed a live action short film that opens their last official collaboration which was the meaning of life in 1983. that short film it, it almost reads like a test run for brazil He had already launched his career as a filmmaker by the time Python split up. He had co-directed Monty Python and the Holy Grail. He had done a film called Jabberwocky in 1979, which was not a huge success. And then in 1981, he did Time Bandits, which I think to everyone's surprise was a huge success. Time Bandits was made for $5 million, and it ended up grossing over $40 million. And that turned Gilliam briefly into this hot, sought-after director in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And that was how he got greenlit to make Brazil, which had already been turned down by every major studio. He'd been trying to get that movie made for years. Nobody wanted to make it. After the success of Time Bandits, he got greenlit to do it. He reworked the script with co-writers Charles McEwen and playwright Tom Stoppard. They shot the film. It was a long shoot. They took over nine months to shoot. And what he came out with was a 142-minute cut which is a little long. Yeah. And this is where the problems began. (laughs) 20th Century Fox had the rights to the film in Europe, and they released Gilliam's Cut in Europe, as is. Universal Studios had the rights to the film in the States, and when it was screened for Universal executives, they hated it. (laughs) They thought it was bleak, they thought it was uncommercial, and they didn't want to release it. And in fact, Sid Sheinberg, who was the president of the studio, actually embargoed the film in the States, Hmm. refusing to let it be shown anywhere, while the studio exercised its contractual right to take over the final edit of the film. They set out to cut it and make it shorter, happier, (laughs) less weird, more accessible, and more commercial. Um, And in fact, this cut of the film, it's known as the Love Conquers All cut. It has turned up. It's about 90 minutes long, and it's turned up on television, and it's universally derided. Mm-hmm. I remember coming across it on TV after I'd seen the, the real movie and being like, what the fuck is this? Because <laughs> I didn't know any of this backstory. Right. Okay, so now this became a war between Terry Gilliam and Sid Sheinberg. The studio had all the legal right to do what it was doing, but Terry Gilliam decided to take them on in the press. He took out a full-page ad in Variety saying, Sid Sheinberg, when are you going to release my movie? He went on Good Morning America, and when they asked him about the rumored trouble with the studio, he said, no, I'm not having trouble with the studio, I'm having trouble with this man. And he held up an 8x10 glossy of Sid Sheinberg and said, this guy is refusing to release my movie. <laughs> this became a war that they had in the column. Is that of... the first
2: official doxing?
1: <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Um, In the column of Jack Matthews, film columnist for the L.A. Times, where both Gilliam and Sheinberg were talking to Jack Matthews, basically talking shit about each other, and Jack Matthews was blowing this up into a big story in the L.A. Times. So this became a whole thing. Um, Increasingly personal, increasingly hostile, and Gilliam, Gilliam was not going to give up on this. So... He was legally forbidden from showing this film in the United States. Mm-hmm. He started having secret screenings of his version around Los Angeles. They they literally stole a print <laughs> from the studio and smuggled it out and started having screenings. The lawyers were all over this. He tried to have a screening at USC at the film school. The lawyers intervened and said, you cannot show this movie. He did another screening at the California Institute of the Arts, again, in a film class. And somehow they got the lawyers to concede that he was allowed to show a clip from the film Mm -hmm. as an audiovisual aid in his lecture. And so they basically just showed a two-hour, (laughs) 20-minute clip from the film. And then finally, the last blow in this campaign, he arranged for a clandestine screening for the L.A. Film Critics Association Uh, on December 14th of 1985. They showed it to the L.A. Film Critics in a back room of the Beverly Hills Gun Club for some reason. And the critics loved it. And they, I think, were suitably appalled that Universal was fucking with the Mm -hmm. film this way and sort of caught up in the romance of fighting back against that. And the next day, they announced their awards, their annual awards for the year. They awarded Brazil Best Screenplay, Best Director, and Best Picture of the Year. Wow. For a film that had not been released in the States yet. Mm-hmm. And apparently there was some debate about that. They had to check their bylaws and say, you know, okay, this is a film that we are told is not going to be released this year and will never be released in the form that we watched. Is there any reason we can't call it Best Picture of the Year? Turned out there wasn't, so they did it. That was embarrassing to Universal Studios. This happened on the same night that they were releasing Out of Africa, which was their big awards bait film of the year. Mm -hmm. Anyway, they ended up two days later, they announced that Brazil would be released in its current form uh, on Christmas Day. So, again, Christmas movie. (laughs) Now, a couple of things in Sid Sheinberg's defense. First of all, the film was not a big hit. He was right about it not being particularly commercial. Second of all, contractually, and Steinberg made this point to Jack Matthews, if Terry Gilliam had just turned in a two-hour and five-minute version, that's what he was contractually obligated to turn in, mm-hmm. the studio would have had no choice but to release it. But to release it. Hmm. it was the refusal to cut even 15 minutes from the movie that allowed them to take over the final cut of the film. Hmm. So this was, to some extent, a problem he created. Yeah. Um, and I think, as we watch it today, I doubt you will think that every single minute of this film was essential. Oh,
2: I can say absolutely not.
1: <laughs> I don't think you've ever watched a two-hour, twenty-minute movie and thought
2: we needed all that. Well, yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not true because when we watched um, Lawrence space, of Arabia, Lawrence of Arabia and Space Odyssey, and space is, yeah, where I was like that's long, but I don't know what I would cut. Okay. So I. I Okay,
1: so you acknowledge that some films can yeah. be over two hours. In. Right.
2: But that doesn't mean it doesn't feel long. Yes. But I, I also somehow long and yet not feel as though there was something superfluous. Right. At least not obviously so.
1: so. Right. Okay, so this film, it ended up getting two Oscar nominations for screenplay and production design. The reviews were mixed, I mean, there were people that loved it. Mm -hmm. Um, Kenneth Turan in the LA Times called it the most potent piece of satiric political cinema since Dr. Strangelove. And I I think its reputation has only grown since it came out. It became a cult movie, and then it's, over the years, been recognized as this influential masterpiece. Mm -hmm. Critic Clive James calls it one of the key political films of the late 20th century. Total Film Magazine named it one of the 20 greatest British films of all time. The Guardian placed it at number 17 on a list of the best sci-fi and fantasy films of all time. Time magazine called it one of the 100 greatest films of all time. And I love this movie. Mm-hmm. And I I loved it as a teenager when I first saw it. It became one of those films that my friends and I would quote and refer to a lot. And I just I did rewatch it again before we sat down to watch it today. And I and I still think it's a masterpiece. I think it's baggy i think it's messy i think there are problems with it Mm -hmm. but it's so weird and it's so one of the things pauline kale talked about in her review and she had a mixed reaction to it but she talked about what a personal vision it was Mm -hmm. that how it was this organic thing and how that in itself was an accomplishment just to get that vision on screen so i don't know i'm i'm curious to see what you will think about it i think there's a good chance you will absolutely hate it uh I, i really don't know so I guess we'll just go watch it and uh, see what you think. Okay. Are you Are you looking forward to this? I'm not. No. Curious. Not really. No. No. Are you open minded? Never. <laughs> don't you think that's a problem? I don't. <laughs> You're comfortable with.
2: I am. I'm. I'm. I am comfortable with that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Going into something close minded. And...
2: Yeah. I feel good about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'd rather someone prove me wrong than disappoint me.
1: So <laughs> that's a high bar. Yay. Hey. And on that note, let's go watch Brazil.
2: Okay.
0: I hereby inform you under powers entrusted to me under section 47 paragraph 7 of council order number 438476 that Mr. Buttle ah. Archibald, residing at 412 North Tower, Shangri-La Towers has been invited to assist the Ministry of Information with certain inquiries and that he is liable to certain financial obligations as specified in council order RB-CZ-907-X. Stroke 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 Sign here, please. are you taking? There thank you same again please what's that press harder this time good what is this all about that is your receipt
1: for your husband thank you and this is my receipt for your receipt okay during the break nikki and i watched brazil uh maybe we can start with the question of do you now agree that there was no possible way Terry Gilliam could have cut 15 minutes from this movie and saved himself a big fight with the studio.
2: I do not agree. <laughs> there were many 15 minutes in there that I think could have been cut. You you seem to
1: lag a little bit during the viewing of this film.
2: I did. I felt... I think we were about
1: halfway through when you started saying, how much more of this do we have yeah, left?
2: Yeah, I, I felt every minute of this film. I really did. <laughs>
1: Uh, so, what was what was your viewing experience like with Brazil?
2: So, that was a weird movie, and I don't know how I feel about it.
1: Okay, well, that's what we're here to get to the bottom of.
2: I didn't enjoy it. At all? Not really, no. Hmm. Um, I think I found myself a little bored at times.
1: Okay.
2: But... I recognize it as a truly singular vision of an artist, and I respect that. And I, think, I mean, there's a lot going on in it, and it's trying to confront a number of things, but yeah, it just didn't inspire anything in me whatsoever, oddly enough. I don't know why.
1: That is strange. I think you might need to watch it again. No,
2: I won't be doing that, ever.
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> See, I thought there was actually an off chance that you would Really enjoy this film.
2: I appreciate it for what it was like. Again, like it, it is very much...
1: You like production design yes, heavy films. I do. You like seeing like a world realized yes. in really interesting and imaginative ways like that. You yes. like Tarsem Singh's movies and stuff like that. Yes. And I think the production design and the cinematography on this film are both amazing.
2: Yeah, I guess so. It does have that sort of... It has a slightly Jim Henson feel to it, where it almost feels like a futuristic labyrinth or something. Um, So I did appreciate the world construction. I just, it didn't, I don't know, it didn't do anything for me for some reason.
1: Okay, so I do do think there's a lot going on in this movie. And maybe one window into that is we'll look at Terry's alternate titles for this film. Mm Mm-hmm. Um his original title, he originally planned to call it 1984 and a half, as an homage, obviously, to George Orwell's nineteen eighty-four, and to Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half, which is a kind of surrealistic film with a lot of dream sequences, and you know, he said Fellini was a big influence on him. But the Orwell thing is obvious. Mm-hmm. I mean he's what Gilliam said was that 1984 was nineteen eighty-four made in nineteen forty-eight, and this he said was nineteen eighty-four made in nineteen eighty-four. And then other titles that he considered... These are terrible. These are all terrible titles, by the way. How I Learned to Live with the System, so far, was a title that was apparently considered. um, Which, I guess, evokes a little Doctor Strange love, How I Learned to Love the Bomb sort of thing. And then this title, I think, is interesting. Although, again, it's a terrible, terrible title. So that's why the bourgeoisie sucks, he was going to call this film. Mm -hmm. So I think between all of those... And then the title that he finally used. There's at least three or four big thematic things happening. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Does any of that <laughs> mean anything to you?
2: <laughs> yeah, sure. That was all there. I don't just care. I don't know why. And maybe it's. Been, and I think this is something we've come up against a few times in this project. Is my coming to these works sort of after their influence and their themes have sort of filtered into other stuff. So, what was an original idea, even though this really isn't an original idea, because we have things like Orwell and we have things like Kafka. Right. um, Uh, Yeah,
1: this film is drawing on a lot of both literary and cinematic influences. Um,
2: Feels somehow, I don't want to say pedestrian, because it, it is still, again, a very singular piece of art, just on a visual level. But...
1: It didn't blow your mind. It
2: didn't blow my mind. And it's, again, these films that are sort of looking to a future and how the director envisions the future versus us sitting in 2018 knowing what that future actually is. Mm-hmm. So some of it is very on purpose. Like, I think this very much was like a an intentional sort of retro futuristic aesthetic. Right. That was part of the vibe. But for me, I think the interesting thing, the interesting place in which we find ourselves in terms of technology, in terms of sort of state surveillance and bureaucracy is it's much more elegant than that. Like it isn't necessarily tubes and ducts through your apartment and all through your life. It isn't an obtrusiveness, Mm -hmm. you know, what makes it so insidious and I don't want to call it inherently evil, but just sort of easily exploited is how seamless it is in our lives like we're being surveilled all the time and we know that but it's done in a way so that we're not always aware of it like there are no little robots with eyeballs following us around it's just there are cameras everywhere there is um facial recognition technology being used everywhere and you know so our there's our phones and, our TVs phones and like we are literally us. walking surveillance um right But I don't feel...
1: I mean, I feel like this is metaphoric, but I don't feel like it's that far off.
2: I'm not saying that it's... I I think because the sort of quote-unquote system is so inelegant in this film, Mm -hmm. it feels to me a little bit more benign than what we are actually in right now. Because, again, it's easier for us to sort of volunteer our civil liberties, essentially, the extent to which we sort of sign away our rights and our privacy very casually, whether it's like through user agreements that we click on but don't actually read or... Nobody you know, reads like, those right. things. Who so, the hell reads those things? It's just like, as long as I can sort of access this thing that makes my life seem fun, or as long as I can access this thing that I think connects me to a wider world or whatever, I'm willing to sort of sign away these these, these rights or the, an idea of identity that we should be much more protective of than I think that we are.
1: You you don't feel like that's in this movie? No, what I'm saying
2: is I think all of that is in this movie, but it's done so sort of, not clumsily, but it's just because it's so easily seen. Like, there's the Ministry of Information, and there are, you know, again, the robots with the eyes following you around and surveilling you. There's all of the propaganda around the sort of power of information and this idea that, you know, everyone is a potential informant on their neighbor. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, okay,
1: but I mean, it was made 30 years ago. Right.
2: No, that's what I'm saying.
1: Before the Internet age that you're talking about. That is what I'm saying. um, When a lot of this stuff, the cameras on the corners and all of that were just sort of coming in.
2: Right. No, that's so. I'm not saying that it is a detriment to the film. I'm saying that I think my coming to it at the point that I am probably makes me a bit more jaded around these themes. Mm. So it maybe it's harder for me to be awed or surprised at a vision of a sort of authoritarian bureaucratic surveillance state when you know
1: the reality is the reality is
2: so much worse, (laughs) and and worse in a way that. It's very easy for you not to see what's happening. Whereas, you know, in, in Brazil, it's out, you see exactly what's happening. Like, the system is right in your face. Like, there is no matrix, right? Right. Like, it's all right. very, it, the thing is what the
1: thing is. And it is, I mean, it is broad right. and exaggerated right. and kind of grotesque. Yes. Um, for one thing, people talk about this as a future dystopian movie, and mm-hmm. it's not, really. No. It opens saying in the, in the 20th century, century. Yeah. so it's not mm-hmm. this far-off vision of the future, What he said was, he said, I don't think it's a prediction so much as an observation. He says, I think it's like a very elaborate documentary done in a Lewis Carroll way, Mm. seen through the looking glass. It's all recognizable things you see around you, but it's been transformed. I wanted to do a cautionary tale about where we are and where we're going. Mm -hmm. So it is, it's... It's kind of like this alternate reality funhouse version of the late 20th century. I mean, this was the Thatcher-Reagan years, yeah. which was a great time for dystopian letter I mean, V for Vendetta was written during the same time. It's that culture that it's coming out of. So I think the themes that you were talking about are all there. Mm-hmm. They're just more exaggerated and grotesque. Like the scene where the bomb goes off in the restaurant and they sit there and they keep having their right. meal right. and the waiters bring out a screen mm-hmm. to just protect their vision from the right. carnage that's happening all around them, that kind of stuff. And the the technology is interesting. It was, like you said, it's, it's this sort of retro version mm-hmm. ...of the future. hmm And that was... That was intentional. It was done for a couple of reasons. One... And I can't remember where I read this... ...or whether this was something Terry said... ...or it was some other, somebody else's observation... ...but talking about how... ...in most movies about the future... ...set in the future... ...the technology almost instantly looks dated. Yeah. Which is... Like, if you look at Blade Runner mm-hmm. or Alien... ...like, oh, it's set in the far-off future the computers look like they were 1982 yeah. computers yeah. and so by 1985 it already looks like that's outdated so this was a way to avoid that problem by making it kind of already outdated technology mm-hmm. the sort of timeless technology but it also to me what it makes me think of is it's it sort of feeds into this vision of this kind of oppressive inefficient regime Everything is crappy. Nothing works very well. What it reminds me of is there's a famous quote. It was a quote from Samuel Broder, who was the former director of the National Cancer Institute, talking about why government was bad at science. And he said, if it was up to government to cure polio through a centrally directed program, you'd have the best iron lung in the world, but no polio vaccine.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's that's what all the technology in this looks like to me. It's like this society that has oppressed individuality and creativity. Like that's the kind of shitty technology that you end up with because there's no there's no independent thought going Mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. All right. Well let's all right. So let's let's approach it from a story perspective. So Mm -hmm. what talk to me about Sam.
2: I don't like Sam. (laughs) Um and that may have been the problem. (laughs) I did not connect with Sam as a character at all. I get that he is, you know, your standard sort of pathetic everyman cog in the system. Right,
1: he's this kind of sad, sad yeah. Walter Mitty type character.
2: And the only way that he escapes the quote-unquote system is in his dreams where he turns into some sort of weird uh, steampunk archangel <laughs> that's chasing after this woman that he's determined is the woman of his dreams and uh-huh.
1: he
2: has a full head of hair in his dreams and all these other things and he slays many uh dragons mm-hmm. to save this young lady that he doesn't know and who only seems to speak in his name. Yeah, I mean, I think we're supposed to be rooting for him, but he takes a job so that he can get elevated clearance, security clearance so that he can access her personal information, which is stalkerish. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and then proceeds to stalk her in the name of love, apparently, and and wanting to protect her from the system. But I just I, I couldn't get on board with Sam. I couldn't get on board with whatever that love story was supposed to. I I don't know why she fell in love with him all of a sudden mm-hmm. and was just immediately in love. Uh, any man that, you know, wants to have sex with a woman while she's wearing his mom's wig <laughs> and okay. nightgown. That's a
1: whole other aspect we are going to have to talk about. I think
2: it's a little odd. There's, a, so, there's some
1: serious Freudian, yeah. ediful stuff going on in this film.
2: So, yeah, I just didn't... But Sam, yeah,
1: Sam is an interesting protagonist because, yeah, on the one hand, he's this sad sack underdog. Mm-hmm. And we do, I think our natural instinct is to root for him. But he's really not a very sympathetic character. No. He is seemingly perfectly happy being a cog Mm -hmm. in this system, in this heartless bureaucracy surveillance state. And I'm not sure that ever actually changes. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: He falls in love, or he imagines he's fallen in love. Yes, Falling in love puts him at odds with this system. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure he ever decides the system is wrong or the system needs to be taken down or it's never a decision to become a revolutionary against this oppressive system mm-hmm. all he wants to do is find a way to be with this girl right he in the beginning of the film he seemingly has no problem you know okay so the film the story starts off with this mistake the the Ministry of Information is looking for this terrorist named Tuttle. And a fly falls into the printer and the form comes out, Buttle. Right. And so they go arrest this poor innocent guy named Buttle. And they torture him to death. Yes. And then when this mistake is discovered, that sets the whole plot in motion. Sam has no problem. His only goal is to help his boss. Get the paperwork. Get the paperwork in order and keep this from disrupting anybody's profession. Mm Mm-hmm. So we're going to, okay, we need to take care of this bottle matter. There's never any outrage that, oh, this poor innocent guy was killed. Right. There's n- not really a lot of empathy for his family. That scene where he goes and visits...
2: The wife, yeah. The
1: wife is a, a horrifying yeah. scene. Yeah.
2: He's just trying to get paperwork signed, and she is, quite rightly, devastated and disgusted at him... And at the audacity of, of him sort of coming there about paperwork when she doesn't even have her husband's body,
1: right? Um, She's just wailing, yeah, "What have you done with this body?" Painful. Yeah, um, and he's like, "This this really isn't help very helpful, yeah. Mrs. Bottle. You know, I didn't have to come here." Yeah, he's he's awful, mm-hmm. and I'm not. I don't know if that ever really changes. I don't in think. This I movie. think it's, it's
2: a, a a very selfish endeavor on his part. He sloppily tries to sort of extricate Jill, his dream girl, from the system in order for them to sort of safely be together because he has decided on his own that she is the woman he's meant to be with and he's going to move heaven and earth in order to make that happen again without a whole lot of input from her. And I think he, you know, uses his... Can we call it a friendship? His, you know, association with Tuttle... To sort of play at being a revolutionary, like he isn't Tuttle. Tuttle is actually out there doing things that are meant to <laughs> bring down the system.
1: This this is Robert De Niro's yes. character, Tuttle, a maverick, yes, duct repair, heating repair man.
2: And it's only after Sam has been arrested and he. Um, is, you know, strapped into the very expensive torture chair. We get the start of the dream sequence where Tuttle and the rest of his revolutionaries drop into, you know, the ministry and... And now you're at the end of the movie already. bro yes. But, like, so... so but that's the only instance where I think there's a shot in there where Sam is, you know, wielding a gun and shooting at the Ministry of Information officers and, you know, acting out this idea of being this revolutionary. Right. And we find it, it, that it's not real. It's a dream sequence. Right. It turns sequence. out to be and a dream sequence. So, yeah, right. no, at no point is he noble in the way that heroes in these dystopian films tend to be.
1: But I don't think he's supposed to be. No, I don't I mean, think, I think he's to be I mean, I think this is all either. intentional. Yeah. I think this is, I mean, again, I come back to that title of this is why the bourgeoisie sucks. Mm-hmm. That. He's, ju- he's just complicit in mm-hmm. this system. He just wants a carefree existence. Right. He wants to not be bothered. He's perfectly happy being a cog in this system. It's just kind of this banality of evil thing that is a critique of all of us, really. Right. Jill, I guess, is a more noble character. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's the one who is actually trying to get... Buttle. ...some justice right. for Buttle's death. Mm-hmm. Fighting against this bureaucracy, um, she's the one that, when the terrorist bomb goes off, is yelling at him to like help people. Right. So, and this is where we get into this kind of the sort of Freudian Jungian interpretations of this, which we can't possibly do here. But I think accepting her as this sort of dream figure that he's questing for, you can. I think you can sort of see her as his longing for his better self mm. for his feminine side she's i think she's sort of this figure of the eternal feminine that he's at least subconsciously questing after okay There are several scenes, several shots in the film that kind of, I think, play with her as his feminine side. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: There's a lot of mirror stuff. The very first time he actually sees her in the flesh, uh, it's when he's in Bottle's apartment. Mm -hmm. There's a broken mirror on the floor and he sees her. He looks in the mirror and he sees her face Mm -hmm. looking down from above. And then later in the film, when they're in the shopping center, they have that fight it's one of the great kind of silent comedy bits in the film the fight where she's wrestling with him but she's behind the mirror so it looks like he's wrestling with himself Mm -hmm. against the mirror so Mm -hmm. he's fighting with himself when he's fighting with her
2: yeah
1: there's stuff like that that i think plays with this kind of this idea of her as this feminine side of him Hmm. that he's fighting with versus the sort of masculine, oppressive figure of the state mm-hmm. that he's trying to escape. I don't know if that means anything.
2: I, that's probably, I didn't pick up on that at all, but yeah, that like, it's possible. I guess then I would argue they didn't do enough with that.
1: Hmm. None of that makes you like the movie any better, does it? No,
2: because, yeah, I, I would hope he would be a better person than that. Yeah, for me, it all came across very selfish and objectifying of her.
1: mm. She's she's not in and of herself a great character. No. And,
2: and it's almost quite honestly,
1: like, it's not a great performance either from...
2: Well, she doesn't have a whole lot to do. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in sort of contemporary film, we have that sort of manic pixie dream girl trope. And I feel mm-hmm. like that's sort of what she is in this. And
1: I agree with you about the love story where she does suddenly seem to be in love with him. Right. After hating him and being suspicious of... Like there's a switch that happens where the first half of their relationship she treats him the way you think she should treat him, mm-hmm. which is you're a stalker, you're an asshole yeah. <laughs> i I don't know why you're chasing after me. go away. She literally kicks him out of her truck, mm-hmm. and then that switches somewhere, and I'm not even sure where exactly that switch no. happens where suddenly she's in love with him,
2: yeah, it doesn't make any sense
1: it's it is a little hard to buy, I guess it happens in that scene. In the shopping center after the explosion.
2: Where he stays behind and tries to help people. Where he's helping
1: people, and then he stands up to the the police, Mm -hmm. the soldiers that are trying to arrest her. Mm -hmm. I think that's where that moment happens, but...
2: It's still not earned at all. It's not
1: entirely convincing. No. I mean, I I will just go ahead and say I don't think Love Story is one of Terry Gilliam's strong suits. I think their sexy dialogue later in the film is a little problematic and troublesome too, where she's like, you know, after he has her officially deleted from the system, he has right. her killed.
2: Are right, you into necrophilia? Right, exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah, this is not super hot. Not sexy talk, no. Terry. No. All right, well let's I don't know, what do you want to talk about? You wanna talk about Tuttle? <laughs> I mean This was I don't I don't think Robert De Niro had ever done a role like this before. Mm-hmm. Like a bit part, almost a cameo kind of thing. Mm-hmm. He apparently just loved this script. In fact, he wanted to play Jack, the Michael Palin part. The doctor. The torturer, yeah, the, yeah. his friend. Yeah. his Talk about banality of evil. That's, right. We'll talk about that character too. But De Niro wanted to play that part. And Terry Gilliam, which this had to have been a ballsy thing for Terry Gilliam to say. is He was like, nope, sorry, I've already promised that to Michael Palin. <laughs> so turning down Robert De Niro... So De Niro took this other part mm-hmm. of Tuttle.
2: I mean, the Tuttle character is interesting in so much as Jill seemed sort of conjured up out of Sam's mind. Tuttle, I feel like, has that same sort of feeling as a character. He doesn't feel like a, a real person. It's mm. this sort of very sort of Robin Hood character. It, he's basically Tyler Durden for Sam, <laughs> um, except that it's not actually Sam. Right. But he is the sort of, you know, the revolutionary of the imagination. He 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 drops in and he, you know, does something really clever, and then he drops right back out just as quickly. And
1: yeah, he's like Batman. He's, he right. just swings in and out. Mm-hmm.
2: Again, there there isn't a lot explored about sort of why he's choosing to do the things that he's doing outside of the the system. And right, it just seems to be
1: we don't we don't even know if he's actually a, is he actually a terrorist? Right. Or is he literally what he claims to be, which right. is this rogue heating engineer? I just don't want to
2: deal with the paperwork. <laughs> um.
1: All right. So, okay. This, uh, this movie's so weird. So, let's back up. I, maybe we need to talk about ducks. Okay. Because <laughs> this movie is obsessed with ducks. Mm-hmm. What the shit is that about? Any idea? No.
2: <laughs> I mean...
1: <laughs> it, the film literally opens with a commercial... About ducks. About ducks.
2: Yeah. No, um... I don't know what the thing about the ducks is, other than like they are conduits of some sort, and mm. that is um, significant in a system that runs on information. It's also a very sort of literal manifestation of this idea that we're all interconnected and part of this working machine.
1: We're all in it together, right?
2: <laughs> so yeah, that's the only thing I can think about. No, with the I ducks. think I think
1: that's I think that is what it is. I think it's this. I think it's this sort of symbol of that oppressive surveillance Mm -hmm. state that, Mm -hmm. again, we're all connected and there's these things that are running through our walls that the state is very touchy about having anyone else touch them. They're, Mm -hmm. you know, controlling those systems. They're very ugly. Yes. That, you know, all these sets, even like um, his mother's apartment, which is this beautiful apartment, but then it's got these ugly ducks that are running through it. I think it's also again coming back to that bourgeoisie thing like maybe it's about the comforts that we want like central heating and central air Mm -hmm. and as long as we're comfortable we're willing to put up with all of these ugly things Mm -hmm. that kind of thing i don't know it's i haven't quite figured it out
2: yeah, I don't know. I mean, I do, I think it's just a statement on sort of the system and and you know, one of the things we were speaking about earlier was the inefficiencies of it. So, we think of ducks and those sorts of what is that called? The bank tubes, the
1: Oh, those pneumatic. Right,
2: tubes. pneumatic tubes is uh, its speed and its efficiency and it's, you know, eliminating the need for a person. mm mm-hmm. Mhm until it gets clogged, right? And so then you get backlog and then you get explosion of paperwork and then you get slowdowns in the system and all that sorts of things. So
1: So then Tuttle is the guy who can bypass. Bypass that stuff mm-hmm. and cut through the cut through the paperwork and cut through the bureaucracy and make it actually efficient and eliminate the need for the state. Right. Okay. Uh what about Jack? His, this is his good friend in the Ministry of Information mm-hmm. who's a very cheery very affable very friendly fellow
2: who was willing to change his wife's name for the convenience of his boss yes
1: oh I love I love that <laughs> his boss gets his wife's name wrong and he just starts calling her Barbara yeah he's good name even yeah. when his boss isn't there he's yeah. just like decided her name is now Barbara yeah because that's what the head of the Ministry of Information was calling her
2: yes. Jack is pretty deep into the system, very much complicit. Um Well,
1: he's he's a torturer. He's That's a torturer. what he does for a living. Yes.
2: And he seems to be okay with that. Yeah. And so okay
1: with that in fact that he has his daughter
2: Right, hanging out at the office. Hanging out at
1: the office while he works.
2: Yes. When the Tuttle Buttle controversy, you know, is brought to light, he essentially says, Well, they say, Oh, you got the wrong man. He's like, No, I got the right man. They sent <laughs> the wrong man. Right. But I <laughs> some said, other department right. made
1: the mistake.
2: Exactly. They so, delivered
1: the wrong man, but I accepted him as the right, right. man. So
2: no qualms about killing an innocent man. <laughs> it's
1: but. not my fault that Buttle's heart condition didn't yeah. <laughs> show on Tuttle's chart. So,
2: yeah. Not a great person.
1: <laughs> all right we haven't talked about his mother
2: <laughs> mona from who's the boss <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh is that is that how you relate to her that's
2: how i relate to her well that's how i first knew her yes i
1: knew her from soap originally oh Catherine she Alman. was on
2: soap that's right yeah yes <laughs>
1: <laughs> she's great
2: she is. Um,
1: this is a whole other level of satire going on here yeah, with the whole plastic surgery yeah, thing. Yeah,
2: there is definitely a commentary on sort of the uh, grotesque nature of the wealthy. <laughs>
1: And the obsession with and the appearance obsession and with youth.
2: eternal youth, and so again, you have the very interesting ideas about medical advancement. So, a facelift is now done with b- binder clips and <laughs> Those saran giant wrap. Binder
1: clips on her um, face. Jim Broadbent <laughs> is the the plastic surgeon,
2: and she just progressively gets younger as the film. Yeah goes along so yeah until was...
1: she turns into jail in the she final, into Jill, well, which is again just... it's a it's a dream sequence but
2: right but that's what he wants obviously <laughs> um so yeah it's, it's it's an odd thing to watch and her other sort of wealthy older woman women friends are all in various stage of bandaged this and it's yeah.
1: so so Catherine hellman has is going to the surgeon the cutter mm-hmm. and then her friend is going to another doctor who apparently does all his work with acid.
2: Yes. <laughs> Minor complications. <laughs> My complication is developed a complication.
1: Yes. And that woman just disintegrates yeah. over the course of this film, becoming more and more grotesque until she's basically a liquefied corpse. Yes. Yeah. Alright, well, let's talk about the ending. Okay. This obviously was Part of the big contention between Gilliam and the studio is that, you know, the studio ending, the Love Conquers All ending Mm -hmm. that Sid Scheinberg mandated, and which actually played on television. He and Jill get away at the end and go live in their little cabin outside of society and escape. They live happily ever after. And that's not so much what happens here.
2: No. He goes insane. (laughs) Yes. And retreats into the corners of his mind. Right.
1: Yes. Which Gilliam says he sees as kind of a happy ending. Now, that's a really pessimistic view of what a happy ending is. Mm-hmm. He said in an interview with the New York Times, he said, to me, that's an optimistic ending. Lowry's imagination is still free and alive. They haven't got that. They may have his body, but they don't have his mind. The girl rescues him and takes him away, and they live happily forever. It's only in his mind, but that's sufficient, I think. It's better than nothing.
2: Yeah, it's pretty bleak. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I suppose it's the more realistic ending. He wasn't a great spy, if that's what he was (laughs) sort of trying to do. Um, So it was pretty inevitable that he wasn't going to go right off into the sunset with the girl and be free, so...
1: Speaking of the ending, Neil Marshall, the director of The Descent, said the ending of The Descent was directly inspired by
2: She does have a—she a, a, loses it, and uh, <laughs> yeah. she, she, she thinks she, she's, like, at a birthday party with her daughter or something. like. She escapes
1: from the yeah, cave, right, yeah. and she gets away and— yeah then that turns out to not be the be case so though true.
2: in some cuts that is the end right same yes. thing exact right. Yes. same thing
1: they did with Brazil is yeah. you know, the studio <laughs> thinks people want that happy ending mm-hmm. and no, not so much yeah. I mean, I think you can see just in terms of the influence of this movie, I think you can see it on a lot of stuff since I think yes. Gotham City in Batman and Tim Burton's Batman mm-hmm. I think is very much inspired by this, though this was itself inspired by stuff like fritz lang's metropolis and uh Alpha alphaville and you know older movies but i think there's a continuity there i think watching it this time i realized that the the ministry of magic in the harry potter movies (laughs) is very much inspired by the ministry of information here Mm -hmm. like the lobby is almost exactly the same Mm -hmm. with the statues and the the creepy mottos and everything etched into the stone oh we didn't talk about the title that Gilliam finally settled on Brazil? Yes.
2: Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? I have no idea.
1: <laughs> I think that was the first thing you said when we finished watching the movie, is why the fuck was that called Brazil?
2: Is it? I don't even remember. Yeah. So I don't know why it's called Brazil. <laughs> do you know why it's called Brazil? Uh, I mean,
1: sort of. I mean, I think it's that song that plays yes. throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Pauline Kael put it well in her review. She said the title of Terry Gilliam's Brazil is used nostalgically in a semi-jokey, ironic way. It refers to the 1939 pop song about the romance of Brazil. Heard as a refrain in the background of the movie, the music is meant to evoke the pop escapism of the past. Old Brazil is what you want life to be and what can only be dreamed about in the squalor and sporadic terrorist violence of an (laughs) Anglo-American police state. So that's it. I think it, that's the, the whole movie is to some extent about dream versus reality right. and this desire to escape the gray mundanity of modern life. And I think that's the romance of Brazil is mm. that's what that represents, is that that there's some escape from this that you go off to a beach in Brazil and everything will be happy. And I guess that's sort of where he gets to in the end by going crazy and being lobotomized. So it's happy not so much no it's a very happy movie not really no very upbeat cheery <laughs> christmas movie <laughs> okay any final thoughts on brazil you're not a big fan of this film
2: i i wasn't i wish i had been but i just wasn't and i'm sure i'm wrong but well
1: you know have to be
2: insofar as these sorts of films are supposed to scare you a little or mm-hmm. at least sort of wake you up a little i didn't get that from this um, okay. And again, that's not to the the fault of this film. It's just I'm coming to it from a different place than had I seen it when it was originally released or had I seen it before I saw other films that obviously were influenced by it and influenced by the things that it was influenced by. I think the scarier dystopian story, again, is the way that surveillance and... A growing sort of totalitarian environment has sort of seamlessly incorporated itself into our lives in ways that we see and we don't see. Like, that's the scary stuff to me. There are no ducks. There are just listening devices everywhere that we have brought into our homes.
1: But why aren't the ducks just an acceptable
2: metaphor for that? I mean, I'm not saying that they aren't. I guess because the scarier thing to me is that which is not seen. Mm Mm-hmm. Or that which sort of integrates itself so seamlessly into our lives that we don't realize how easily they can be exploited and sort of jeopardize our freedoms, right? So, like, you buy an Alexa and you bring it into your home, but you haven't thought about the fact that if a murder occurs in your home, can the police take the recordings that Alexa has you know on file and use that in a case of it like you had you didn't Why, think yes, about yes they it. can right but you don't think like you bought that and you brought it into your home right um the doorbells i think it's amazon is developing doorbells that will have built-in facial recognition technology and not only will it be able to recognize faces that come to your door they can scan people just passing by your fucking home oh that's and scary you, right and you can decide to mark people as suspicious right so Ooh. then this idea that you are like so like the fucking power of that. That's frightening. So when it's like, oh, this is what it means to be an informant on your neighbor. It's like now you are literally marking someone as suspicious just because they walked past your home. Right. Or you, you know, so like to me, so it's that stuff that makes me deathly afraid. You know, that's the sort of warning call, right? Like, and we're past the warning call point. So looking at a film like this, and that's not to say that these themes still aren't relevant. They obviously are very relevant. But when they were when they're told in this fashion, at least for me sitting where I am right now, it seems quaint.
1: It's old news. It's
2: old news. And... I mean, I I do think
1: there's stuff in this that resonates with our modern time. And in fact... Watching it now, in the 21st century, there's stuff that resonates even more than it did when I first saw it in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I think that that scene right at the beginning of the movie where Helpman, Peter Vaughn's, he's the head of the Ministry of Information, is mm-hmm. on the TV, and they ask him, you know, why do the terrorists hate us? Because they're not and, team players. He's right, yeah. right. They're not team <laughs> players. They've forgotten good old-fashioned values. Mm-hmm. It's like, that is bush after 9 yeah. 11 saying they hate our freedoms yeah. like just this overly simplistic yeah. not grappling with any real issues right. but just and i'm
2: not demonizing. i'm not arguing that the themes aren't relevant or that oh these are old ideas or anything that's not what i'm saying right. they're all very much still in play but they are done now in a way that one makes it easier for us to be complicit Mm-hmm. in it and makes it harder to identify and then extract yourself from it like it's easy to see ducks and say i'm gonna fuck up the ducks that's what i'm gonna do mm-hmm. what it's harder when the system is invisible and it's harder when it's a system that you have invited into your space
1: so you're more of a black mirror yes. dystopian dystopian yes okay <laughs> i mean i
2: that is scary
1: yeah I agree with that. I mean, that's... I I, I can see how this is sort of a quaint Mm -hmm. version of the dystopian surveillance Mm -hmm. state. Okay.
2: So it's that, and then I have no hero in this story. Because Sam is not a hero. Bo- no,
1: I don't I don't think Sam is even meant to be hero. I don't think hero. he's meant to be I either. think he thinks he's the hero, right. but I don't think Terry Gilliam thinks he's the right.
2: hero. Right. But so what I'm saying is, so that's even one less thing for me to sort of connect to. So, you, okay. So I think that that's why I just didn't... And again, that is not to d- discount what I think really is a singular vision from a director. And I think there are some amazing moments in it. I think the whole um, storyline of his mother and her friends is actually probably the most interesting part of it to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And this sort of commentary on how class can sort of insulate people from...
1: Actual human suffering. Actual
2: human suffering and the the sort of dirtiness Mm -hmm. of bureaucracy. Like, Like you said, putting up the room divider when there's a terrorist attack so that they can continue their lovely dinner without thinking about the fact that people are over in that corner dying. Right. So I thought that was great. And just... Using the plastic surgery as a way to sort of physically manifest the sort of grotesquerie of wealth and and privilege. I thought there was at the scene in the mall, there was some sort of, it wasn't a protest, but there were people walking with signs saying consumers for Christ. I thought that was like a funny little touch (laughs) and very much speaks to like the way that we equate capitalism with morality. Yeah, I thought the scene with Tuttle, this is in the dream sequence after they've escaped the ministry. Um, and he has sort of taken off all of his riot gear and put it in one of the ben- the the ducks and then he's just attacked by paper.
1: Yes, all the paper. All from the, the paper just the ministry is exploding, attracting all the papers all in over the air. him.
2: And Sam tries to like pull it out, and as he's pulling away paper, you realize that Tuttle's not like he was somehow just swallowed up by all the paper, and he yeah, doesn't exist. He just anymore.
1: disappeared into the paper.
2: So there are things like that that I think are are really interesting visually and exploring themes in a really interesting way. But as a whole it just didn't
1: the story just didn't the resonate story just with didn't you.
2: resonate with me I mean I
1: I can see that and I think the story worked less well for me than it did when I watched it in the 80s. I think in the 80s I thought Sam was the hero mm-hmm. and I didn't really think about the fact that Sam is basically Adolf Eichmann in this story mm-hmm. that he's just another bureaucrat in this system and that his motivations are entirely selfish. Right. I still think it's brilliant filmmaking. Mm-hmm. I think the cinematography is amazing. I think the production design is amazing. Gilliam does these. It's very German expressionist. It's very these extreme angles mm-hmm. and the way the sets contribute to the emotional turmoil of the of the story mm-hmm. and all of that mm-hmm. I think is gorgeous. There's, I think, some brilliant bits that are just funny, and a lot of it's sort of inspired, I think, by silent comedy, by like Chaplin. I think the very simple bit with his desk,
2: I did like that. Office. I thought that probably could have been a Monty Python sketch in, sketch in and of itself.
1: It was a funny. That thing. was very Chaplin-esque. Yeah. That was very modern time. Mm-hmm. That first of all that just that tiny mm-hmm. horrific little office mm-hmm. cubicle and then he doesn't even have a whole desk yeah. he has half a desk that he shares with the guy on the other side of the wall yeah. and they're each tugging trying to get a little more of the desk that was brilliant i think that mirror thing in the shopping center is a nice comedic mm-hmm. visual gag i think there's a lot of stuff like that that really works for me in this film so are we all just sam is that basically the lesson of this movie
2: i mean i don't think we all are sam no but a great many of us are sam yes
1: Who's not Sam? Are you Sam?
2: (laughs) I'm probably Sam, sure. I'm not doing anything to actively dismantle the surveillance state or anything like that other than choosing not to have certain things in my home, but even the things that are in my home can very easily be manipulated. Yeah. So I don't have an Alexa or a a Google Home or whatever the hell else, but...
1: You have an iPhone. I do
2: have an iPhone. That's
1: listening to you. The TV is listening to you. But I'm also the person
2: like tries to cut off location shit. Like I try to (laughs) make that as...
1: (laughs) You got the little piece of tape over the right. camera like, Right, so laptop. I do my
2: little, you know, things that probably aren't saving me anything. But, um, you know.
1: So where does this fit in our uh, Christmas movie continuum?
2: It's pretty adjacent. <laughs> yeah, it's not super cheery. <laughs> <laughs> super seasonal. <laughs> there are Christmas trappings throughout. There's a lot
1: of Christmas imagery yes. throughout. <laughs> a lot of scenes, the only color. Everything is so gray. Yeah. And then you get these little Christmas decorations yeah. throughout, um, and then you get weird scenes like the the guards,
2: oh singing carols, singing yeah.
1: Christmas carols in the basement of the yeah. Ministry of Information, stuff like that. The last time he sees Helpman when he's in the cell, Helpman is dressed, dressed up as, as Santa, Santa Claus, Claus for the yeah. Christmas party, stuff like that. Yeah, so Christmas adjacent. Yeah, we'll we'll call that. that's our show we want to thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us again next week Nakia our next episode drops right on Christmas Day Mm -hmm. so I think it's only appropriate that we watch a true feel good holiday classic in the spirit of the season so we will be watching Joe Dante's Gremlins from 1984
2: is this because you have a crush on Phoebe Cates I mean the Phoebe Cates thing
1: is a factor certainly Mm -hmm. it's not the only reason I'm
2: pretty sure it is
1: (laughs) In the meantime, you can visit us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, where you can download earlier episodes, leave us a comment, or find our social media links. As always, we encourage you to suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch. I actually took a class in college called Sociology of Bureaucracy.
2: Fun times.
1: Yeah. This was something I I had to take, like, one or two classes that weren't literature classes, and this was one of the ones I took. Uh, but me and another a friend of mine talked the professor into showing Brazil mm-hmm. during the class and assured him that it was relevant to the topic, mm-hmm. sociology of bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And I think he ended up thinking it wasn't. He felt like we'd wasted the class's time. Oh, really? Yeah. I think...
2: I think that would fit. Right? Yeah.
1: I mean, that's what this is all about.
2: Maybe he didn't like it like me.
1: Maybe that might simply have
2: been the problem, is that he just didn't like the movie. Yeah. Oh, well.